Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live. As you heard in the intro, we're a podcast for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados. I try to find guests that, number one, I find interesting, and number two, can work to break down the knowledge silos involving movement. We're here this week for part two of our interview with Dr. Ian Dunnikin. He is a sleep expert, and as you heard in part one two weeks ago, he's got a very interesting background on how he got to the area of sleep expertise. We were chatting uh, during the podcast, and one of the things he mentioned is a non-negotiable for him is to move at least an hour a day in some way. We were having an interesting chat uh, before we started recording, and he said the three things that he's really been focusing on in his life are moderating what he eats, getting eight hours of sleep a day, which I would hope as a sleep expert he would do that, <laughs> and maintaining a, a level of activity of about an hour a day. So Dr. Dunnikin, thanks for coming back to Moving to Live and f- talking to us for part two of the interview. No problem. No problem. Good to be back. When we finished off two weeks ago, we had just gotten to the point where you said you could tell us about how you got into sleep research. So you had a career in the military followed by quite a few years working for a mining company in different capacities that allowed you to get an MBA and really go into what sounded like management. How did the kind of the veering off, although I guess it really isn't that much of a veering off since I would assume a or a worker who is alert is involved in health and safety and that's a good thing. So sleep is, is an important part of health and safety. How did you get into the area of sleep research and understanding sleep? Yeah, so it was completely actually actually by accident. So I was in those business improvement type roles as we spoke about before, up in the mining operations. I completed the master's in engineering and I was working in sort of improving productivity and safety. And and then a problem was posed to me by a group of mines, which was saying we're having trouble with sort of the fatigue risk management area of our business about getting cooperation and probably getting everybody to the table from health and safety, HR and operations to come to a common agreement. Could you facilitate a three-hour workshop? or sit in on it and help us maybe do some problem solving. 
I said, okay, no problem. So that happened. Then that led to, okay, let's get together for a day to let's have some more kind of satellite workshops. Let's investigate this project. Can you dedicate a day a week to this project and help us out? No problem. Can you facilitate a, an Australian-based workshop? Yeah, no problem. Would you like to come out of your business improvement role for six months to a year to work on this as a project um, independent of the business, sort of the business unit, and um, help us improve this across the region, working with a managing director and reporting to a general manager? It's like, yeah, no problem. And it sort of just grew from there. And so it was basically, here's a problem we have to solve. And if I get a very interesting multidisciplinary problem, I really get kind of invested in it. And I like researching and learning about it. So I started contacting people, learning more about sleep. Obviously, I had some background in health and safety. So got more and more into the topic. Um, one thing led to another. And then eventually, um, they created a global role within the business for me, where I worked on the improvement of fatigue risk management systems across all of the operations globally. And that then allowed me to travel to across Australia, Southeast Asia, Africa, up into Canada and in the US as well to help out a number of operations um, on the ground. So um, through that process, really developed my expertise in it from uh, self-taught initially. Yeah, lots of conferences, talking to some of the world's experts. Uh, and then I got invited to do uh, a PhD with Harvard and Monash. Uh, looking at work hours, sleep disorders, and productivity in the mining industry, which really helped me cut my teeth further. But then just due to kind of organizational challenges and the difficulty of trying to do a PhD part-time, ultimately that fell on its head. And I think a lot of probably mature age students who try to do PhD part-time, a lot of them do fail, um, not, due, not due to their own kind of input, but it's just very hard to balance part-time PhD and work. And particularly if you're collecting data within a business as well, it can become a little bit controversial and, and difficult if you're, if you're kind of researching and trying to improve at the same time as well. So it can be a, a conflict in, in some, some ways. So yeah, really just sort of got into that, that way um, and then ended up doing that for an additional six, seven years in the business and really got heavy into fatigue risk management, the application to productivity. And I think having that business and engineering background really sparked my interest in the productivity piece because when we go around and talk to operations, you know, it's one thing to say, this is the best roster to work. This is what's going to make people safe. This is what's going to make them alert. But the next question of a leader's point amount is going to be, mm, what about the point of view of productivity? Are we going to lose productivity? So we very quickly had to start matching up the health and safety data, modeling data, from the rosters and then in conjunction with productivity data as well, or even asset management type data to give people the whole picture and say, look, if you make this change to the roster here, you're not going to have any negative impacts um, downstream or vice versa. If you have this roster and we know that the roster you have at the moment, you have X amount of accidents per year, that X amount of accidents cost you $10 million. If you put this change in place for $1 million, you can negate or have this cost avoidance of you know $9 million essentially. So it was really starting to look at stuff in a different way um, you know, and across these different operations from upstream in the mine operations down to the rail through to the port. So I really uh, sort of cut my teeth on, on all those projects and uh, combining all those different data sets to really kind of have this goal of around sleep and performance. How much is a sleep uh, deprivation or not sleeping enough a problem in the mining industry or, or is it not? I mean, how, how, did, how did a mining company decide or how did you get put in the position where they said, you know, we need to look at the sleep of our workers or did it, was that just kind of a subset of we need to look at a way of improving worker safety and reducing the number of accidents? 
No, it's definitely an issue. And I think like any business that has 24-7 operations, whether it be a mining company, um, you know, a manufacturing plant, whoever it may be, is going to have fatigue risk issues. Because if we work at night or we're awake at night and we're doing activity, fatigue is an inherent risk. You know, we are diurnal animals. We are meant to be asleep at night and awake during the day. Um, and no matter how many people say to you, oh yeah, I can adapt to night shift, you know, the old bro science out there, you know, I've got a way to, I've got a way to adapt to night shift, you know, you know, man, I'm, I'm better on nights than I am on days. Like that's all, that's all crap. Like, and we, and we've seen that, that it's just not true. You know, we perform best during the day and we perform best when we sleep at night. So we knew this was inherent to the company um, and across the different business units um, regardless of product group. And so it's really about supporting those businesses to improve. Uh, is it an issue? Yeah, it's always an issue. So we find that people on their days off generally achieve about eight hours of sleep. Those people working day shift anywhere from six and a half to seven hours of sleep. And those people working on night shift generally get between four to five and a half hours of sleep. Now, I found that across nearly every industry that I've worked in. I've probably assessed the sleep of nearly 5,000 people in the industry applications. And that's what we see. And similarly, in elite athletes, we see people as well who are awake at night having similar types of sleep values as well. So, you know, across the board, I would say on average as a society, whether you be an elite athlete, a shift worker, or anybody working Monday to Friday, we're just not getting enough sleep. It's becoming an issue. And I guess the question would be, I'm sure it's slightly different for each one, but why are we getting less sleep? Is it because we're busier? Is it because there's more things to do? Is it because we're not educated on the need for sleep or the importance of sleep? Yeah, I think it's a multi-pronged probably answer to that one. What I see when I go around and speak to people is one is um, more and more businesses going 24-7. So from an industrial point of view, we see more of that happening. So that's stimulating more jobs that have shift work or even people, probably like myself and yourself, Ben, we're not shift workers, but we probably do work early in the morning, late at night. We have irregular hours. And so anything outside the hours of seven in the morning to five in the evening is considered shift work by the International Labor Organization. So by using that definition, nearly everybody falls into doing shift work. So yeah, we see, we see that happening. We see society not really valuing sleep. Like I went into, and I'm going to call them out here on the podcast. I went into a Nike shop the other day and I have a t-shirt that says train sleep, repeat, but to have sleep crossed out on it. So just train and repeat, train and repeat. And I thought, what an absolute bullshit message to spread to people. Sleep is the biggest number one free recovery tool that we have, whether it be elite athletes, amateur athletes, or someone just trying to get off the couch and get fit. This is the best and the easiest thing for us to do. But no, people go and spend thousands on cryotherapy, massage, all these other things and not focus on the sleep when it is the king, the pinnacle of recovery. And so that's part of it too. So we have these societal issues as well that's impacting us. So we've got industry and we've got society that's impacting it. And the third part, as you rightly point out, is education. We don't get told enough about the education of sleep. And too often, I think when I speak to people, oh, people must know this stuff. But I go into organizations and I speak to people, all educated, you know, degree, masters, executive type people. And they'll come up to me afterwards and go, I never realized that. I just thought you could train yourself to get by on five hours sleep, you know? And there's very, very few people that can get by on less than six hours sleep. There's probably some people listening to this podcast going, yeah, but I, 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 I function fine on six hours. There is less than 1% of the world's population that can do that. What happens is many of us get used to operating on less sleep. So we get used to feeling like crap and we get used to operating at a certain level. 
And that's why we think we can get by on it. But if we brought those people into a laboratory and start doing some testing, we would very quickly be able to show them their their um, sort of deficits in their performance from a cognitive and a physical point of view. So, um, yeah, it's a multi-pronged approach thing to the sleep problem that's happening in society. It's almost like society looks at if you need a lot of sleep, you're considered weak or lazy. Oh, for sure. And I think, like, I often say this about athletes as well. And you see some athletes have, like, rise and grind, you know, putting in the work. Well, you know, I've got a few talks on this and I thought maybe say sleep in and win, you know, because it is recovery. And so many athletes, particularly in the fighting sports, think you have to get up at four or five o'clock in the morning in combat sports and go train like Rocky. Rocky has influenced so many people negatively <laughs> that they get up. I, I tell you, it's crazy. I'm a, I've, I've had people say to me, educate people. Oh yeah, but what about Rocky? You used to get up at four in the morning. I'm like, it's a movie. <laughs> You've got three kids. You have a job. You have, you know, like I had a guy last week going to me, I get up at half four every morning, you know, because I want to get back, I want to get buried and get my training done. But by two o'clock, I'm really tired. What can I do about that? Maybe not get up at half four. But I want to get up and train. What, have you tried maybe getting up at seven? Maybe exercising on your lunch break or exercising after work? Because there is these kind of optimal times during the day that we should be training. And so in that example there, if we look at sleep, most people will say we'll sleep from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. There's two parts of that sleep that's happening. And the first part of the night is predominantly non-REM sleep, which is important for recovery and repair and regrowth. This is where you have stage one, two, and three. And stage three sleep being deep sleep, where growth hormone is released. But then from approximately three o'clock till seven o'clock in the morning, you have REM sleep, which is important for basically backing up and rebooting the brain, so to speak. So if people are missing out on that, no wonder they're feeling groggy later on in the day. And that's why. So if you're waking up at half four, you're waking up right in the middle of those REM cycles. You're reducing the amount of sleep that you have in terms of REM. So you are going to feel groggy during the day. You are going to feel like crap around two o'clock. You are going to feel like that because at two o'clock in the day, we experience a second circadian dip or circadian nadir where cortisol is low, slight put, it's, um, slight surge in melatonin. So we're going to feel a bit sleepy in this post-lunch dip. That's not related to the food. That's just a normal biological rhythm that happens across a 24-hour period. So that coupled with your sleep debt, coupled with how you're feeling, yeah, that's why you're going to feel tired. So imagine how productive that person is going to be at work or if they are picking up their kids from school, how alert they're going to be. I'm you know? curious. Now you've got me thinking about me. I've always been a relatively early morning riser, typically not 4.30 in the morning, but 5.15, 5.30. But I've also been somebody who's gone to bed at 9 or 9.30 at night. Am I canceling out my REM sleep because I'm waking up when what you've said it would be there? Or is my body adapted to that? Or is there a slight variation by hours as long as you're getting in that eight-hour window? So that's, that's a good point, Ben. Like for you, I would say probably not much of a problem there. And the reason being is if we look at people across the board, we have what's called a chronotype. We have what's called a lark chronotype. A person likes to get up early and go to bed early like yourself. A person likes to go to bed late and get up late. And then you have an intermediate, a person that basically can swing depending on who to live with or what group they're around with. Um, and so for yourself, you're getting up at 5.15. The question is, are you waking up naturally or is an alarm clock getting you out of bed? Uh, either naturally or one of my dogs wakes me up, <laughs> but typ okay. typically naturally, typically my eyes, yeah. my eyes wake up and it takes, or my eyes open and yeah. you know, it's not, uh, it's not, I, I cannot imagine, I can't remember the last time an alarm clock went off to wake me up. Well, there you go. So now I would say you've got what's called um, a lark chronotype. So you go to get up early 
And the second question I'd ask you then is, during the day, do you feel excessively tired where you have to consume um, caffeine to keep you awake or any other stimulants to keep you going during the day? I have two or three double espressos early in the morning just because I enjoy the taste. Um, and then I typically don't consume caffeine the rest of the day or other stimulants, not because I feel tired, but just because, you know, I've, I've had my enjoyment or my treat for the morning and it's kind of like, okay, let's move on to other things like water. Yeah. 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 So, and you feel good and you can function well. And when you go to bed at night, do you have any problem falling asleep or you just fall asleep fairly easily within 10, 20 minutes? Typically within, typically within 10 to 20 minutes. Yeah. So without having a complete full-blown sleep consultation here on your podcast with you, I would say that's completely <laughs> normal. And there are the questions you want to be asking yourself is like, do I need coffee during the day? Am I waking up without an alarm clock? Do I fall asleep easily? That's all, that's all good then. You know? And you know, you're probably allowing there somewhere eight to nine hours of sleep every night. I'd say that's fine. But the problem is, Ben, is that some people are having dinner at seven or eight o'clock in the evening. They're going home or sorry, after, after, after dinner, and then they're jumping on a laptop, they're working till 11 or 12 o'clock at night. They're trying to shut off straight away, then get up a half hour and train. That's the problem. You can't, you can't eat into both ends of it. So if you're getting up early, you've got to be going to bed super early. And I'm curious along those same lines, uh, I always find it easier to wake up and I feel much more alert earlier, or I did during summer months or when it got light earlier in the day. And then about three years ago, I got one of those sunrise clocks yeah. And I basically set it to gradually rise from five to about five fifteen. So my room gets light at the same time each day. Am I doing something bad for myself or is this a good way to adapt to the way that I operate? Mm, that's that's anecdotal that's a question. Anecdotally I've noticed since I've done that in the winter. I don't notice a difference from time of year to wake up. Whereas I remember you know, even four or five years ago in the winter, it would be much harder to get up early because, oh God, it's dark out. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, first of all, I'd say like, I, I do understand what you're saying because I'm the same. So it's, it's the start of summer here for us in Australia and I get, get, it's getting light at about half four in the morning. Sunrise then is like about five o'clock and it gets dark around seven, half seven at night. So for me, like waking up earlier in the morning now is, is heaps easier. I generally wake up before the alarm clock, before six. I feel pretty good, but I go to bed earlier. But in the winter, I tend to, I could sleep in to like eight o'clock in the winter because it's darker, it's colder. Um, but I've never, I've never looked at the benefit of having the sort of the, the bright light in the morning, that kind of sunrise type clock. And if that helps, no, because at one point you would say, well, that's like there's seasonal variation and you should go with the seasons. Mm -hmm. There's one point in that, but then the other point is like maybe have more consistency the whole time. So yeah, I, I don't know what, I don't know what the answer is. That one, Ben, sorry, you stopped me there. I don't know what's ben, better ben. Uh, or worse, but I think if you're feeling good, that's probably a good thing is to ask the person how they're feeling after operating. Okay. And they're still getting the consistency of sleep. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to look at that now and see seasonal variation. I'll be looking for an upcoming research project. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you about my grant. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about how most people are probably walking around in sleep deprivation. And let's, if, if you wouldn't mind, look at three different groups of people. The competitive athlete, whether they're a high school, college athlete, or even a professional athlete, the age group athlete, and then just the person who wants to be more alert. If you look at the 
competitive athlete first, if they're in a setting, if they're in a high school or a college, or if they're a professional athlete where they're traveling a lot and staying in hotels, what are some tips or some things that they can do to be more consistent about their sleep? I think you hit number one. The most important thing is try to get at least eight hours. Yeah, I'm going to back this up and talk about the groups first before I talk about the individuals because um, one, and this is mainly to your strength and conditioning coaches, high performance coaches, um, any type of coach out there. Be careful what you design because you may get a negative result. Okay, so it's a bit like in research. Be careful about the research problem or question you pose. Um, and this is the same with elite athletes or highly trained athletes. If the training schedules and the travel schedules are not designed correctly to allow the opportunity for recovery, we cannot expect the athletes to get the adequate recovery between sessions. And so what I mean by that is that the timing is everything. So the timing of training sessions, the frequency of them, and we can use what's called biomathematical modeling. And we just had a paper accepted for publication on this, looking at biomathematical modeling for rugby union training times and game times, which gives you a, an effectiveness score. And basically, that allows you to design the training schedule to an optimal level to ensure that athletes are getting enough time for recovery. This has been used uh, widely in military, mining, aviation, and rail in terms of designing shifts and rosters for uh, productivity and performance and safety, obviously. So uh, that's the first thing I'd say is from an organizational point of view, ensure that the, the rosters and the training schedules are designed correctly and the travel schedules. But also that, that the athletes, what that immediately brings to mind to me is I'm thinking college athletics where early morning practices are common. Yeah. And in the in many of the sports, athletic events at seven, eight, or depending on TV schedules, if it's at a higher level, nine o'clock. So it sounds like if that's the way it's set up, it's going to be difficult to have the absolute optimal performance and recovery. Yeah, for sure. And especially if athletes are doing two a days, you know, like a classic example I use is combat sports. Most combat sports, most of the competition happens at night. When do most combat sports athletes train? Early in the morning. Why? Tradition. Tradition. Rocky. The second one is swimming. Swimmers, tend to do two a days, one in the morning, one in the evening. And we've seen from studies by Shona Halson, for example, and Charlie Sargent, that when you, you have these early morning sessions and these late evening sessions, that sleep is impacted. These swimmers only get like five hours sleep. I actually just did an audio abstract recently on this where I review a paper on my podcast. I have these series of audio abstracts on the podcast that we review different publications. And these swimmers were swimming six, seven Ks in the morning, six, seven kilometers in the evening, about you know four or five miles. It's like you get like four or five hours sleep in between sessions. But then people might argue, oh, but that's all they need. But on their days off, they were sleeping eight and nine hours, which shows actually they don't. We, we know they need more sleep. So what they're doing is going through periods of sleep deprivation and then getting recovery. And we see this a lot in athletic groups as well. We see this in, in elite rugby union. We've seen this the week before a game where athletes tend to build up sleep in a couple of days before the game. Then they kind of crash and burn after the game. And then they start to revamp as well. So you have this kind of this rhythmic pattern across the week and even across the season. And so that's not very good for consistency. So the first thing is, yeah, look at the organizational design and development of the, of the rostering and scheduling and training times. For the individual athletes, I think, yeah, focusing on eight hours is good. Um, I would say for most athletes, allow nine hours in bed. That then allows for eight hours of sleep. 
time to fall asleep, you're going to have some awakenings overnight. That's quite normal. Um, so if you can allow nine hours for that. The second thing is to, obviously, we speak about sleeping environment, cool, dark room. A lot of guys like Airflow having a fan in the room as well. Um, the other thing is the removal of electronic devices for at least an hour before bed. Um, you know, people like Amy Bender will talk about this as well, about the exposure from the blue light. But also as well, it's not just the light, it's the activity. And we see this a lot in executives, actually, or even people um, such as uh, college athletes, university athletes that are trying to do an assignment and train as well. If you're trying to do an assignment or do some work before you go to bed, not only are you have to exposure to that blue light, but you're also, have, you're also engaging in a stimulating activity. So it becomes very hard for you to switch off. So that's why we recommend, you know, reading a, a novel or something in a paperback before you go to sleep because that kind of tactile feel of, of the paper and, you know, in soft light is very good for uh, relaxing people. I'm curious on this. Again, I'll use myself as an example because one of the benefits of the podcast is I get to geek out. I've, <laughs> I've done some experiments on myself, obviously an N of one and it's an anecdote. So take it for what it's worth. <clears throat> but if I read a paper book versus a book on my iPad on a Kindle, shameless plug for the Amazon Kindle, I don't notice a difference in my sleep quality. So if I spend 25 or 30 minutes winding down reading a novel, it doesn't seem to have an effect on me. Is that my imagination or is it possible that I'm an anomaly or are there some people who are more affected by blue light than other people? That's an interesting uh, question. And we did do a study on that. Uh, Madison Jones led this study where she looked at the different types of activity. Um, and I was a, a co-researcher with Madison on that. And she, she had um, uh, a highly trained netball athletes come through the lab and underwent under overnight polysomnography and they were randomized to different tasks on different nights and performance was assessed the next day cognitive and physical performance and basically yeah looking at ipads reading in print um and then the type of print as well as in, sorry the type of reading so reading a boring magazine about cars of you know that was quite boring to these people or houses as opposed to a stimulating activity such as doing like a crossword puzzle or a word search and it was basically little to no you know, difference found between these groups. Um, cortisol was also taken, measured from saliva samples, as was melatonin, and there was no real differences. Now, there could, could be a couple of things happening there. Young athletes, highly trained, training twice a day, going to school as well. They might just be, the sleep pressure might be just too high for them, and they just fall asleep regardless. Um, I would say if you're having no trouble falling asleep, that might be one thing. But the blue light or the exposure to the light on like one of these Kindle devices or an iPad may be causing frequent awakenings overnight that you may not even be cognizant of or be causing fragmentation, which we call wake after sleep onset, or it may be changing the EEG activity. So you may not even be aware that these things are happening, but it could be affecting your sleep later on the night. A little bit, little bit like alcohol. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, but alcohol is great because it helps me fall asleep. Yeah, it does. But then it causes a lot of awakenings and you know, minor disturbances throughout the night as that alcohol is kind of dissipating from the, from the system. So it may so, be affecting me at a level that I don't realize. Potentially, yeah. So it would be, would be interesting to see. Now, to, the only way to really measure that is by undergoing polysomnography and overnight sleep lab tests to do that. But you could do some crude kind of measures yourself by you know, using a wrist-worn activity device to just measure gross blocks of sleep um, to see kind of is there a difference in terms of quantity. Um, but yeah, if, look, if you're feeling good and you're okay, then it might be all right. So again, it depends on each individual. 
We're talking to Dr. Ian Dunnikin. He is a sleep specialist. He's just given us three ideas for or tips for athletes who are perform at a high performance for improving their quality of sleep. If we can look at a different population, think of the active person who maybe isn't an elite level athlete, but they still want to run maybe like you, although you may be elite, but they also have a job that they have to go to every day, a wife or a husband and kids where they've got a lot of things going on. I think earlier in the podcast, you hit on the fact that maybe not being an idiot and getting up at 4.30 in the morning to train might be the best thing. But what are some things that they can do to improve their sleep quality? I would assume one of them is going to be the same thing, avoid that blue light or stimulating activities an hour or so before bed. Well, I might just talk about some of the things I do, Ben, here, because um, this might kind of help illustrate the point. So I'll use an example. Back in 2012, 2013, I was working in that international role, like I said. Um, so a lot of travel around Australia and the world, um, working and helping out operations. But at the same time, too, I was training for a very iconic race called the Leadville 100, which is a 100-miler race in Colorado, which starts at 10,000 feet and goes up to like 12,600 or something like that. So it's a quite a long, arduous 100-mile race. And it's not just the distance, but it's also in the imposition of a 30-hour cutoff, which a lot of 100-milers are 48 hours, just had 30 hours. And it's at altitude as well. And given that I live at sea level, it was all very difficult. That coupled the travel um, for my work, so it was very difficult. So what I said about doing was ensuring that, number one, I got that adequate time for rest and recovery. There was obviously jet lag issues I had to deal with as well. Uh, the first thing I did was I gave up alcohol because I knew that was going to affect my recovery and my sleep. So I took a break from alcohol. Um, at the time, I was quite hesitant and taking a break because I did like a whiskey at the time. <laughs> um, you know, not that I was a big drinker, but I did like enjoy a few drinks. And um, so I did, I did give up alcohol. I also set a time side in my travel schedule for training and for adaptation for jet lag. So, you know, I remember one time I left here in, I think it was February, March, it was 42 degrees Celsius. That's like 110, I think 120 or something like that. It's crazy. Anyway, in Fahrenheit, I got to Salt Lake City. It was minus 10 and I went out and ran 25 miles. So, you know, I give myself some extra days to adapt and do that. Um, a couple of other things I did was instead of renting a hotel room, I hired a, a one bedroom apartment where I could cook my own meals. So I had control over my sort of diet nutrition. I also had space to stretch, do laundry and make life a little bit comfortable while I was there. On top of that, as I spoke about in, the, in a few weeks ago, uh, using bodyweight training as well. So wherever I went, I had, uh, I had about 20 bodyweight um, sessions that I had on my phone or my laptop that I could just pull out at any time and do those. And they were, my principle there was I could do those in my underwear. So I could, plan a, I could have a pair of underpants on if I lost my luggage and still basically do that workout. Um, and those workouts had to be no more than 30 minutes. So I designed about 20 workouts and I used those as well. So they were helpful in terms of keeping my conditioning up. And again, like I said before, I never sacrificed my minimum of one hour movement a day. So I focused on um, adaptation from jet lag, constant movement each day, uh, allowing myself to sort of space, um, to kind of, you know, stretch, do those activities, focus on my nutrition as well, give up alcohol and had nine hours in bed every night as well. And regardless of what was happening from a corporate perspective, um, I didn't drink and I allowed those nine hours in bed um, to, to really focus on that as well. So 
that was kind of some of the things I did do. And on top of that as well, I knew that even though I'm generally an early morning person, I knew that if I trained early in the morning, I would be tired in the afternoon. So what I tried to do was do two a days and break it up as opposed to training early in the morning. So I tried to train at lunchtime, do a short hit type session, high intensity impact training. Now, if I couldn't, if that was not going to happen for some reason, I may get up in the morning and do a 20 minute session, but it was never more than 20, 30 minutes. So I would use maybe a hotel gym or in my room and get that out of the way. And then in the evening, once work finished, then I would um, go and do that training session before I had to go and do any sort of business dinners or had to cook for myself. And the other thing I did as well, um, and which I often do here at home as well as I prepare meals a week in advance as well to try and just save me some time. Um, so I'm not, you know, kind of reducing that time for exercise and so on. So I generally tend to plan out my week ahead on a Sunday and then every day I do a plan for the next day. So if it's Tuesday, I have a plan for Wednesday and so on and so on. It so it's really like, about being planned out. I was going to yeah. say, it sounds like the best advice is plan everything out or control everything that you can because some things are going to arise that you can't control. Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. And so and use every opportunity as well. Like, it's going to sound a little bit silly. And I had the great, the, the great fortune when I was traveling a lot to travel business class. And so in those big A380s, they have a little like lounge up the front where they have a couch and magazines. Um, I would actually do body weight little workouts in there of squats, lunges, and push-ups. And I got some funny looks off passengers and air hostesses, but I just kept doing them. You know, I would bring a stretchy band as well. So I'd be able to like roll on my shoulders on the plane. I look for every opportunity to get movement in. So when I did get to my destination, I wasn't sitting there, you know, completely locked up. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of using every opportunity and planning as well. And from the idea of uh, prepping your own meals and staying in an apartment with the prevalence of Airbnbs that are often cheaper than a hotel for somebody who travels, yeah. it may take a little bit more time to take the taxi or the Uber to the grocery store to get the food but I suspect at the end of the day, you're actually spending less time than if you were staying in a hotel and trying to find a place to eat that gave you the food that you wanted to eat. Yeah, because when you stay in a hotel as well, a lot of times you say you're, you're kind of confined to the bed. You know, if it doesn't have a desk in the room or even the desk in the room, you're not going to sit there and eat your dinner at that. So you end up sitting on the bed with this tray. Then you start watching stupid movies and you don't want to go out when you sort of get into this habit. But in a little apartment, you can kind of spread out a bit, cook your own meals, you know, if you want to have six meals a day, you can, you can control all those things. And I find really just after a while eating hotel food, it's just so full of salt and it's too rich and the portions are way too big. And particularly in the States, <laughs> portions in this, like <laughs> the first time we ever went to America, we were in Boston and me and my wife, you know, she's like 120 pounds. I'm like 170 pounds. We're not very big, but you know, we had a seafood chowder to start and then we ordered a man and the man came out and it was like, it was like a platter for like four people in, in Australia. And we're like, I can't finish that. And the, the waitress was like, what's wrong with the food? And we're like, there's nothing wrong with the food. It's just like, that's like four, there's no way I can consume that food. And we had great plans to go out and have some drinks afterwards and walk around Boston. But we were so full from food, we just had to go back and lie in the bed. And I was like, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> I'm not, I don't care if I insult people or maybe I'll just ask for half portions, but I just cannot, the, the portions in America, you know, are just... <laughs> I'm, this word. I'm not going to disagree with you. I'm, I'm, I'm the person who uh, either orders off the appetizer menu or if, if it's a good steakhouse, I'll immediately ask for the to-go bag and cut the portion in half because I, I agree with you 100%. The portions are almost inevitably significantly <laughs> oversized. Yeah, I remember one time I was up in Park City and we went up for dinner uh, just outside Salt Lake and 
we had a big massive steak and I saw the menu and of course my eyes bigger than my belly and I ran a lot that day so I thought okay I'll, I'll have a slice of cheesecake and the guy was going to me it's a New York style cheesecake and I was like yeah okay just get the cheesecake but what I didn't realize when it came, when it came out it was like a cheesecake it yes. was like I was like that is a that is a cheesecake six, I said, six, I six inches this, thick yeah it was like it was like this block it was like so I, had to, I think I caught into like six pieces and I was like, right, okay, can I get that to take away? Because there's no way. And it lasted me the whole week. It was a great cheesecake, but I was like, man, who eats that in one sitting? Like, <laughs> so that's where my 2000 calories comes out of, I think, trying to keep it underneath that if possible, you know? <laughs> so it sounds like there's some really good suggestions for the athletes. It sounds like for the person who has multiple pulls on their time, it's really planning and controlling as many things as you can because if you make movement a priority or part of your lifestyle from what you've described, doesn't take any more time than if you go and stay in a hotel. And if you stay in a hotel and eat hotel food, the chances are you're going to run into problems and in getting that daily movement in. Yeah. And when you don't plan, then you're not going to have those chances. And so an example for me was the first time I went to Montreal. Uh, I went to Montreal again. I think the first time was in April. Left here, it was like 30 degrees Celsius, so about 90 Fahrenheit. Get to Montreal, it's minus 20. I'm like, oh, it can't be that bad. I walk outside and I nearly die because I don't have any winter clothing. First mistake, you know, and you learn by that. So I went inside and I got all the towels and I wrapped them around my body and put tape on them and then put my clothes on the outside. And the doorman was laughing at me because I, he could visibly see I had towels underneath. And I was like, listen, I just got to go for a run today. So I ran up around Mont Royal, did about like 10, 15 Ks, came back down. But that afternoon, I, you know, I learned and I went and bought some warm winter clothing because um, I knew I was going to go back there a few times. So being prepared for those environments as well, you know, not just um, I'm being prepared in time. I'm curious about, uh, I mean, those are great suggestions for people. There is probably in the last 10 or 15 years been a huge increase in the availability of a variety of fitness trackers that people wear to count their steps, to count their, their, their mileage. Some of them do, are better than others because they have GPSs in it. And now you're starting to see a variety of devices come out. Either uh, these fitness devices say that they will measure also or other devices that will measure sleep, both amount and quality. I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about them within your area of knowledge. Yeah, so we actually validated one of these devices called a ReadyBand, which was a military-grade technology out of the US, which is licensed to a company called Fatigue Science that's based up in Vancouver in Canada. And a ReadyBand has been used by some notable sleep. Um, so the ReadyBand device has been used to assess sleep in some notable sports teams, such as the Seattle Seahawks, Chicago Cubs, New York Giants. Um, it's been used down here by the Australian Wallaby rugby team. It's been used in super rugby, basketball, um, yeah, just to, to name a few. Um, and obviously it's been used in military and mining. Great device, shockproof, waterproof, uh, fairly, very robust and sends the measures to your phone. So that's one of the devices we did. Um, we did sort of verify and validate against uh, polysomnography in the lab against 50 people for approximately 400 nights, which is quite sizable. But in general, a lot of these fitness trackers that people have, that is the key word, they're fitness trackers. They are tracker devices. They're not medical grade technology to assess sleep to diagnose sleep disorders. They can be used to help in terms of identifying a potential sleep disorder, but they are not medical devices. So Fitbit, Jawbone, Garmin, all these different types of devices are really good, but you have to take them with a pinch of salt as well. So in general, what we find is that across most of these devices, time at sleep onset 
sleep duration and time at wake are fairly robust for the ones that have been validated. The, for wake after sleep onset, the time it takes to fall asleep and other sort of measures, a bit kind of wobbly. I'd be very careful interpreting those measures. The other thing I'd be very careful about as well, unless it has heart rate variability, is the differentiation between light sleep, deep sleep, and REM sleep. Many devices cannot do this unless they have heart rate variability. And even then, we don't know what algorithm they're using to assess it. So again, I would interpret those with a degree of, of caution. And also then, um, apps on the phone that measure sleep, basically save your money, even if it is 50 cents. They're, they're not validated. They're of no use. So I wouldn't even bother using them. But in terms of the wrist-worn technology, they can be good, particularly to collect longitudinal data. So if you're someone who wants to kind of see how you're sleeping over time, then you might be able to find some you know, patterns. Like, you know, you don't sleep very well on a Saturday night because you maybe you go out and you celebrate every Saturday night with a bunch of guys and you, you get drunk so you can kind of pick up some patterns in that. Or every Monday night you look after your sister's kid and the kid keeps you awake, whatever it might be. And you can, so you can see these rhyth rhythmic patterns or if it's travel for an athlete. In saying that, they're just trackers. Do not get too hung up on the data. We see a lot of people get hung up on the data day to day. You know, they're just general estimation devices. So don't let the device rule your life. They are beneficial, but shouldn't be the be all and end all. In saying that as well, you can also have very good sleep every night, eight or nine hours on a fitness tracker, but you may have a sleep disorder and it's not been shown true. There is over 80 sleep disorders, eight zero as defined by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And you could have any one of those. And so you could have ideally eight or nine hours perfect sleep, but you could be feeling really tired every day and you don't know what's going on. You could potentially have a sleep disorder. So sleep trackers or actigraphy devices are just one measure or one metric in many that we look at in sleep science for research or for performance. So just to summarize, to make sure I'm understanding this, they can be, if they're validated, they can be good for measuring the amount of sleep, but probably not the type of sleep. And they can potentially be good for identifying how many times you wake up during the night. Is that a good no, representation? Yeah, up until the last point, the number okay. of awakenings per night can be a little bit, bit if you, I wouldn't be, I, yeah, a bit wobbly is what word I would use. I, I, I would interpret them with caution. Yeah. And the one that you've used, that, you, that you've validated is the ready band. The ready band, yeah, which is our fatigue science in Vancouver in Canada. Yeah. But you extensively in it. If, you, if you've seen my head moving around, I'm on my other computer screen pulling up the website to see, to see if uh, that'll be my Christmas present to myself. I'm curious. I've started to look at, I, I purchased just because I'm curious, the Aura Ring. Do you have any experience with that? I, I don't, but the, um, a guy who validated Max, it's like an Italian name, Zambotti, something like that. I could be getting it wrong. Sorry, Max. Um, I was speaking to him recently on email. Because um, he was on another podcast, um, I'm going to try and have him on my podcast. Seemingly, he has validated the Aura Ring, um, and I've heard a lot of good feedback about it. So I'd be interested to talk to Max about it. I think he's based in San Francisco. Um, so, so yeah, I, I'm, I, I haven't personally seen the ring. I haven't played mm -hmm. with the ring. I haven't validated it. I don't know, but I'm, I'm always interested in looking at something else. But I think with all of these trackers, Ben, it's it, you just can't. It's like any data. You can't mm -hmm. believe it as gospel. And you know this from research or other people out there as well. You have to look at a number of different data sets and not just kind of go, this is the one, you know, goal and metric we should like put all our faith in and, and, and lead our lives by it. You know, even if your sleep is, is only six hours a night, are you feeling good? 
like I asked you, do you need copious amounts of coffee during the day? How are you performing? Do you feel good? And if the answer is all yes, 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 well, then don't worry about it, you know. And, and it, that could be underestimating sleep by an hour or two. We don't know. The important thing to remember is sleep is just another tool. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking to Dr. Ian Dunnikin. He is a sleep expert. He's given us some great insight on suggestions if you're a competitive athlete, some suggestions if you're a everyday person who also wants to maintain activity. He's mentioned a couple of sleep trackers, one of which he's had experience and validated. We'll make sure we have that in the show notes. He's got me, uh, I have to thank you because now I'll spend some more money buying that device just because I like to go down the rabbit hole and, uh, and look at it. I think one of the most valuable pieces of information he get, has given throughout the podcast is the fact that it's a priority in his life to move for an hour a day. As I think he said in the first part of the interview two weeks ago, it's a non-negotiable. And I think if you start looking at movement and activities and making healthy choices, just a priority in the accepted way you're doing it, just like he described with his travels and renting an apartment rather than a hotel, you'll go a long way to living a longer, healthier, and more, more enjoyable life. Dr. Dunnikin, I want to thank you for taking time to, for moving to live and again, for those listeners who are podcast geeks, I know there's a couple of my friends who listen to this who are podcast geeks. Once again, if you can just give the name of your podcast, we'll also have it in the show notes. Yeah, it's uh, Sleep for Performance Radio, and it's on Podbean and iTunes. And the website is Sleep for Performance, and that's the number four for both of those, .com.au. The website is getting overhauled at the moment and will be released in a, you can, you can still access the old version, but the new version will be released in January. We've got about, 40 episodes up on the podcast that you can go back and listen to anything from elite athletes to coaches to people in industry so a bit like this conversation you want to cherry pick a lot of different people we even have a buddhist monk on there we have a tibetan uh, lama on there who did three years three months three weeks three days and three hours in silent retreat he's an american lama very famous lama um lama soridas he's on there um there's all sorts on there. So, you know, go back there and cherry pick your way through those episodes and see what takes your fancy. Coming up in the new year, we also have a sleep historian, Robert E. Kirch from University of Virginia Tech. He's going to be on. We have elite grappling athletes such as Lachlan Giles on, who um, competes internationally in jiu-jitsu and who also has a PhD in physiotherapy. Um, you know, so we have lots and lots of different interesting people coming up for our upcoming season. And then in between the seasons, we also do audio abstracts where you can, uh, for 10 minutes, yeah, I'll break down a paper in sort of layman's terms and talk about it and uh, give you some takeaways from that. And they're called audio abstracts. So yeah, head over and get those. They're all free. And then on the website, there's free blogs, free downloads, and just go over there and use as much information as you can. It's all free on sleepforperformance.com.au. As I mentioned, there's eight or nine of those uh, podcasts that I've cherry picked that I've got downloaded, ready to listen. Thanks again, Dr. Dunnikin, for talking to Moving to Live. No worries. Sleep well, everybody. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. 
please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.